How about this? Oh, there it is. There it is. I feel like I'm Pentecostal today. Y'all know how they like. Okay, never mind. Yeah, some of y'all know. Uh, they got they got the mic and everything. I'm a little Pentecostal, but that's beyond the point. Uh, Romans 7. All right, so uh, we usually don't like diagnosis, but in order to have an, an accurate prescription, in order to get the right medicine, you have to have that right diagnosis. Now, I imagine that the day that you get a tragic diagnosis is not a particularly happy day. You're like, man, this is horrible. But, but when the treatment plan begins and when you start to get better, then you realize that diagnosis was necessary for your healing. The law is this way. The law is the, the diagnosis of our condition without Christ. And just like on the day you're diagnosed, you don't like the diagnosis so much. On the day that the law is revealed and that the law shows your sin, you kind of think, well, forget the law. I don't like it that much. But, beloved, if we do not understand God's law, we will not see our need for the medicine that is the gospel. And it is God's grace to give us this law so that we would understand we have need and see that need is abundantly provided in Christ. So we see in this text that the law reveals our condition. Now, the, the question starts with in verse seven is, is the law bad? So verse seven says, what should we say then? Is the law sin? I like how he asked the question and he don't leave you wondering. What the next thing you say? Absolutely not. It's not. But I would have not known sin if I, it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. Now, I'm going I'm to review a little bit from last week. We talked about how in the Bible there are three uses for God's moral law. Three uses. It's really important to understand how the law is used so that you use it properly. The first use, we, we called it the guardrail. That the law kind of keeps society from being as bad as it could be, not because it changes people's hearts, but because it shows that, hey, if you do such and such, there will be a consequence. So you probably shouldn't do it. That's why you don't go smacking people in the face. Not because your heart is so nice and because you just love everybody you're talking to, but because you don't want to go to jail. Now, somebody might have made you real angry that day and you might have thought about doing something. But then in the back of your mind, you're like, well, if I do that, then. All right. And listen, that, 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 revit, that doesn't mean that you are good. It just means that you are logical. <laughs> and you're like, I don't want to face that consequence. That's the first use. The second use of the law is the law functions as a mirror. All right. So you could think and I could think, man, I'm, I'm just morally awesome. I feel good. I don't do really, really, really bad stuff. But when you stand face to face with God's law, you're forced to look at yourself for who you really are. We talked about last week how you might think you was really pretty that day and you were going around smiling. And then somebody came up to you and said, hey, by the way, you got this this food stuck in your teeth. Now, listen, the food was stuck in your teeth the whole time, but you didn't know. All right. So so the law as a mirror is unpleasant, but it shows you what is really there. So that's what he's talking about in this in this text. He's like, I didn't know about coveting. It means wanting something that's not yours, wanting to take it, wanting something that's yours. He's like, I wouldn't know that was a thing. I wouldn't have known I was doing that. I would have just kept living my life. But then the law came up and said, hey, by the way, there's this thing called coveting. And then I go, oh, snap, I'm doing that. It's, it's an unpleasant thing, but it shows the reality of where you are. 
And the third use of the law, we call it the guide. This is for those whose hearts have been renewed by the gospel. And you say, I want to please God. And the law shows you the pathway or the, the map, if you will, of how to get to, the, to obedience. So the law instructs us about what is good and what is bad. And here's the deal. The law is not, by, is not about moral ambiguities, but rather it's about health. A lot of times when we think about God's law, we just think he's being picky just to be picky. Well, why, he decide, why did he say that? He's just being rude. He's just trying to get up all up in my life. No, beloved, beloved, it is for your health. See, these are the instructions for the use. If he created you, then he knows how you best function. Now, if you go to the gas station and you see somebody putting water in their gas tank and you say, hey, man, listen, listen, bro, look, I know you're trying to do something good, but that's not how it's supposed to go. And, and they go, well, don't judge me. Like, well, wait, 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 look, bro, I'm just trying to let you know that's just not how you can't tell me. Oh, all right, then. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like we get mad at people telling us about the law. But in reality, if we understood the goodness of God's moral law, it's not simply that he's being morally arbitrary. He's not just making up things to do. He's saying, I created you. I have the instruction manuals for how you function. And so when you're confronted with the law, it's not about God's pickiness, but about the fact that God knows how you are designed and he wants you to run well. Now, not only does this teach us something about the law, but this, this, this verse 7 teaches us something about sin, that, that not all sins are obvious. Right? He was like, I was doing my thing. The law said don't covet. Then I was like, oh, snap, it's me. All right, so not all sins are obvious. Now, listen, we're going to do a little, a little cultural anthropology. I want you to put your thinking cap on for a minute. Different cultures at different times highlight or de-emphasize different moral standards. I'm going to explain it. I'm going to explain it. There's this, this story of a, of a missionary. He went to uh, the, this tribe that was far removed uh, from a city, and he began to tell the story of Jesus. Now, he couldn't just assume they knew, knew everything, so you got to start like in Genesis. There's Adam and Eve. There's a fall. I mean, you, know, you get all the story, right? And so you, you're, you're, as a missionary, he's excited for the time when he gets to tell them about Jesus, right? Like, that's, that's the crescendo of the story. And so he's, he's telling them about the night that Jesus was betrayed. And he's telling them about how Judas uh, uh, kind of uh, took some money to betray him. And they all got really, really happy. And the missionary is like, and he got real confused. He's like, we ain't even talked about the resurrection yet. Why? What they celebrate him for? Why are they so happy? He came to find out that in that culture, lying and deception was honored. And so they heard the gospel. And you know who they thought the hero was? Judas. And that culture, it was that, that's hey, you get to get ahead, we lie and cheat. And Judas, well, it looked like he got that. They, they heard the part where he died, okay? But like to that point, they're like, oh, he got ahead. And so listen, listen, now, now that might seem so strange. You're like, how in the world would they ever get, get that wrong? But listen, beloved, this is not just about foreign cultures or cultures over there. Even within our society, we have, if y'all don't know this, there's some cultural tension. Y'all seen that? I don't know if y'all watching this anyway. There's some cultural tension. And what's, what's happening is various cultures are emphasizing certain aspects of morality while at the same time de-emphasizing other aspects of morality. And that is where a lot of the tension is coming from. 
All right, so let's, let's, talk about, let's talk about America. We talked about the tribe, all right? So, so we see this, this fight, this argument happening in the, in the media and in and the, the public conversation between those who will be more on the conservative side and those who will be more on the progressive side. So, so what, what is happening here? Really, this, this, is, this is a battle about what is morality. It's a battle between individual concepts of evil and, and corporate concepts of evil. So from the conservative's angle, they are, they're going to argue for individual rights and individual responsibilities. And from the progressive side, they're going to argue for compassion and corporate responsibility. Now, when I lay it out like that, I'm like, well, which, which one should you do? Well, you, well both. You sh right? Why would, why would we make this false dichotomy? We need to be compassionate. We need to have compassion for those who can't help themselves. And at the same time, we need to promote that individuals have morality. It, it, it's this false dichotomy that we have bought in, which demonstrates the fact that, that certain people, certain cultures, certain groups, they cling on to certain aspects of God's law while de-emphasizing the other. And if we want to be holistic, we will, we will look at that binary and say no. Now listen, this should not make you prideful, but it should make you a little bit culturally suspicious. Not about the other people, but about you, <laughs> about your own presuppositions. If the, if, if the scriptures say, hey, listen, like we, everybody agrees that there is a morality. Even when you say there's not morality, that's the statement about right. Everybody agrees there is a right and wrong. But, but here's the deal. Because of sin, our gauge of what is right or wrong doesn't always line up with what the scripture says. And so we ought not, not them, whoever them is, us. We have to examine our own presuppositions and go, does my gauge of what is right or wrong actually line up with the text? So the issue with the, the, the different cultures at war with one another is that, that there's a temptation to not be holistic. And the reality is it fails to measure up to the fullness of God's moral law. So listen, beloved, we are called to both affirm and, crit and critique the culture that you're in. I'll give you an example. So Paul, the great missionary, he went to this city called Athens. Acts 17, you should read his speech. It's a really interesting speech. He's trying to share the gospel. And he rolls up on him, and he, the first thing he does is he affirms. He says, look, I see that y'all have a lot of gods out here and that y'all are really, I mean, y'all are devoted. Y'all are committed to, to religion, and that is a really, really good thing. However, your religious devotion is pointed to the wrong God. I want you to see in that moment, he can go to a culture and say, hey, this thing, what you're doing here, this is worthy of praise. However, this is not. And beloved, th there is no culture that is above that. No culture is above that. This is one of the beautiful things about being in fellowship with Christians who have uh, d from different cultures and different backgrounds. And then when they bring up various things, the first thing he goes, I ain't never thought about it. And what happens, you go, that's wrong. No, no, beloved. You say, well, let me analyze it. Does that match up? Does it match up to the word? We learn in verse 8 that, that sin, the nature of sin, rebels against the law. Verse 8 reads, and sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. 
the commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So he's, he's reemphasizing this, this point. The law seems bad at times because of the way that our sin interacts with it. Right, we talked about how the law was the second use. It's a mirror. It shows our deficiencies, and we don't like that. <laughs> and a lot of times our distaste for God's moral law is actually a distaste for ourselves. We don't want to be called out. It's, I don't know if anybody, y'all, y'all got like a really honest friend, and you know you tripping. You, in your life you tripping. You probably avoiding that really honest friend, right? Like, if I, if, they, if I go to them, they're going to just tell me. And then you end up, like, not liking them. No, that's your fault, though. Like, <laughs> you're the one that's tripping. But you don't want to go to the honest friend because you're like, I'm mean, going to go call me out. This, man, this happens. All the, listen, this, one of the, the privileges and the honors of being a pastor is, is, is getting to analyze how people uh, kind of react to sin. And here's, here's how I know when all that they understand is the law. When all they understand is law is when they feel guilty, guess who they avoid? Like the plague. I be walking down the street, people be going in their house. All right? And I, I like to think it's not because I'm mean or something. But the, the reality is this. The, the, the law, when it comes upon us and when we are in sin, it is an unpleasant experience. So we just kind of like stay over there. But this is not the issue with the law. It's the issue is with our sin nature. The scripture says that, that sin seizes an opportunity through the commandment. In other words, the nature that is corrupted by sin, when it hears the law, goes, no. It, it actually doubles down in its error when it's corrected. Y'all seen somebody do that? Hey, you need to stop doing that. I'm going to do it even harder now. Like, like that, that's, how, that's, that's how sin nature reacts to the law. You can't tell me that. Again, the issue is not with the law. It's with something that's defunct in our nature. See, see, sin's response to the law is deception. See, what Paul says that sin came and it deceived me, and by deceiving me, it killed me. What is he talking about? This is what it is. Sin's response to the law is always reasoning as to why the law doesn't say what it says. We can go back to the first sin in the garden, right? So the snake comes up to Eve, and what does he say? Did God really say? He, listen, it, I want you to understand this. Listen, it is an ungodly reasoning. It is, it is, is we, and this is what we need to understand. The, the theologians talk about the noetic effects of sin, and that, that's fancy. But all it means is that, that sin not only affects our action, but it affects our thinking. It affects our reasoning. It affects how we come to conclusions. And what it really is saying is that motives affect our reasoning more than we want to admit. Motives affect our reasoning more than we want to admit. And I know you've experienced this in a conversation with someone. You're like, they want to do what they want to do. Now, they came up with these nice, elaborate reasons. But we, we, both, we both know you just want to do that. <laughs> the reasoning aids actually what you want to do. 
And often for many of us, for us, for us at different times, the, the motive, the reasonings that we have chalked up are not because it's good reasoning, but it's because we want to do something and we want to, to build an argument to insulate us and to protect us. I mean, this talks about that how we ap- approach the text. We don't approach the text saying that we're going to stand up over it. We approach the text and say, the text of Scripture, we want to submit under it. The motivation affects the reasoning more than you would like to admit. And so what this means is that you need to have, listen, a healthy suspicion of your own moral reasoning. If, if you know that we all have this predisposition to develop uh, arguments and, and constructs so that we can actually do what we want to do, then, then when we're thinking, we need to, to, to back up and say, what is my motivation here? A- am I trying to protect myself? Am I trying to justify what I want to do? Is my motivation to, to submit to God's law or find a loophole through it so I don't have to do what it's calling me to do? Now, what's crazy in verse 12, he he just flips the script. So then the law is holy, (laughs) and the commandment is holy and good and just. You're like, how did you read all that and then come to this conclusion right here? He's saying that the the law is holy. Holy is a word that we we don't really uh, get the definition a lot, but holy means it means like other, set apart, or set above. What he's saying is that God's law is supreme above other laws. Listen, this is the ground for what we call civil disobedience. Why would you disobey rules if the rules are contradictory to God's rules? Because his rules are what? Holy, above, separate, unique. So the Pharisees can go to the apostles and they can say, stop talking about Jesus. And they can say, well, that may be what you want to do, but I have to listen to God. I have to do what he says over and above what you want me to do. Not only is it that the law is, is good and just, it reveals God's nature. Now, what, what did Jesus say is the summary of the law? Love. When, when we look at the law and we see God's motivation in the law of protecting us and of protecting others, we can say, man, God is love. God is, is good. God is holy. God is just. Not only this, the law reveals God's will for my life. One of the questions that I feel the most often as a pastor is, what does God want me to do? And a lot of times, like, I don't know. But here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. We have the tendency to skip over what is obvious to seek an answer for what is the unknown. I'm explaining what I'm saying. So I don't know exactly what direction God wants for your life. But I know there's some moral claims that the scripture makes on you that you're not taking very seriously. But for some reason, you want God to show you what to do. And I'm just saying, well, do what's clear. Do what's clear. And finally, we see that the law, again, it reveals my need. It's the diagnosis of my sin. I had a sister ask me um, last week. She asked this question, said, is, is the law necessary for salvation? I said, well, well, in a certain sense, yes, it's the prerequisite. I don't know I'm sick before the law is present. But when I see my need, I can turn to God and say, have mercy. 
Just so you know, babies crying don't bother me. I got babies. They cry a lot, okay? All right, so here we go. The, the law makes sin clear. Verse 13, therefore did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. But sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good so that, the command, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. What he's saying is we don't see sin properly without the law. We don't see the vileness, the, the ugliness, the destructiveness of sin without the law. Remember the mirror, it shows us. But not only that, here's the crazy thing. Not only does the law reveal our sin, it actually aggravates our rebellion more. Now listen, you ever try to stop a bad habit? Okay, I have. I don't know if it's working anyway. So you try, you try to stop a bad habit, right? And now before you tried to stop the bad habit, you were just living your life. It wasn't no struggle. You were just doing what you do. But the moment you stop trying to do that bad habit, what happened? Well, that fight comes out. It's like, ah, what is going on? Listen, listen. This is an illustration of how we react morally to the law. When the law comes, not only do we see our own sin, our natural response is, no. I really, I'm not, I don't, I don't like that. That See, and, and the more the law is preached, the more that, that the, the revelation of our nature as in need of help becomes clearer and clearer. Because the more the law is preached, the more in myself I'm going, oh, I don't like that. Now, here's the deal. That, that passage is full of news that to our ears is bad, yes? You know, you're not going to read that passage and go skipping down the street, okay? Now, we know the whole story. We, we, listen, we know what Christ has done. See, Christ Jesus delivers us from the guilt that the law reveals and the hold that sin has on us. So listen. Christ Jesus is the only man who 100% fulfilled the law. You can see it in the three uses, right? Like, like, like there's never a point where they can look at Jesus and say, are you stepping out of the boundary? No, never. And when the law, when the law reveals Jesus' nature, what do you see? Perfection. And then you can see how Jesus is constantly submitting to God's law, saying, I will follow the Father no matter what you say. But then you see the, the, that juxtaposed with his death. If he fulfilled the law perfectly, why? Why is he on the cross? Beloved, he's on the cross because of our offense, because of our failure to keep the law. But because when we hear the law, we go, no. But when Christ hears the law, he says, yes. And because he has done that, he can die on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Listen, beloved, no matter how bad you feel when the depths of your sin is revealed, you can know that that sin was put on Christ on the cross and that he forgives you. Beloved, not, not only that, not only that, Christ not only forgives us, but he gives us a new nature. That's that, that, that confusing statement when he says you need to be born again. What is he talking about? You need to be born again. Well, hopefully the law reveals that something wrong and something need to happen. He's saying, actually, I'm going, I'm going to give you something new. 
I'm going to, like, the issue with, with sin is that I desire what is wrong. Then Jesus comes when I, when I trust in him, and, and he begins to transform what I want. So that over time, my response to the law is that I hate you. The response to the law is actually, I really, really want to do that. Now listen, salvation, it is the beginning of a new desire. I'm not saying this is a grown-up, fully orbed, I love holiness all the time. I'm just saying if it is true, if Christ Jesus has begun to prick your heart, you would have a true desire to do what he wants. And then you look at the law not as something that's only a mirror, but as something that can actually help you fulfill your desire to obey him. I want to obey him. How? Well, husbands, love your wives. I want to obey him. But how? How do I do it? I do my job well. I want to obey him. But how do I do it? I consider others as above myself. You see what I'm saying? Like it, 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 it illustrates, it fills out this desire. Now, this is, this is what this passage, this teaching causes us to do. It causes us to distinguish between God's law and the gospel. The law condemns. It condemns justly. It's not like it's not bad. We, we tripping. The law condemns, but the gospel, it shows how Jesus Christ fulfilled the law and took the consequences of our rebellion. What this means is that it, it, it gives you some wisdom for how to speak to a brother or a sister. So listen, when a brother or a sister or yourself is tripping, you just, you wilding out, you don't care about the law, you, you not, look, what, what I'm, what I'm going to say, well, at this point, you don't need the comfort of the gospel because you're wilding. You need to see the reality of your own sin. Now, hold up. Let's look at the law. Now, beloved, if someone is just burdened under the weight of their sin and is having all these questions about how does God feel about me? Will he forgive me? What do we say then? We say the words of the gospel that Christ has fulfilled the law in your place. This helps us to have meaningful community meaningful friendships in the gospel. Not simply that we hang out and say, what's up? But no, we know the word of God and how to apply it depending on the state that we are in. So if I'm with a brother or a sister, and I know that, that man, they, they're kind of veering off the track. They're kind of backing away. They're not seeing the reality of their own sin. Then I come with the law. But then if I'm with a brother or a sister and they are down and they are grieved, and they are full of shame, then I come with the goodness of the gospel. See, really, really, the whole community of the church is supposed to be a community that is centered around God's word, that's centered around the law and the gospel. We can see this in the word that is preached and even the practices that he has given us to do. So you can take, take something as baptism. Like how does baptism relate to the law and to the gospel? Well, you got to know your need first, yeah? You got to know that you deserve to die because of your sin. But then the good news of the gospel and the picture of baptism is that in the baptismal waters, you see that Christ died in your place. He rose again so that you can live the newness of life. You see this when we take communion. Listen, listen, for you to want to take communion, you got to know your need. I can't spiritually feed myself. I need somebody to help me. And then we see Christ, his generous and gracious promise in the gospel. 
to be our food and our drink when we don't even deserve it. Beloved, I want our church to be a community that is built on the word of God, that is built on God's law and his gospel so that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. And that we will be so transformed by the gospel, we will look around and say, how can I obey? And beloved, we don't just obey in a corner. We go out into the world and we obey God's command to love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, even when when it reveals our diagnosis, it shows, it points us to the fact that you will heal us, that you will forgive us, that you will transform us. Lord, help us to to submit to your word, to incline our ears, to hear what you are saying. Would you take away our rebellion and would you give us a willing spirit, a heart that not only uh, listens but delights in your word? Would you do this by the power of the Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name, amen.